Okay, uh, welcome back to the Anxiety Book Club. This is episode 26. And I'm very happy to be talking today with this month's guest, Shiva Rajai, uh, author of a forthcoming book titled Relationship OCD. Um, subtitle here is a CBT-based guide to move beyond obsessive doubt, anxiety, and fear of commitment in romantic relationships. So Shiva, thank you so much for being here. Oh, my pleasure, Josh. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. I'm really excited about today's topic. Um, and just to give a little bit more background on today's guest, she's the founder and director of the Center for Anxiety and OCD in Irvine, California. She's also a member of the California Association of Marriage and Family Therapists and also the IOCDF, which is a great um, OCD organization. So yeah, thanks again for, for being here. And can you tell us a little bit about, yeah, how, how did you get into uh, OCD therapy? Sure. So um, the work is really, it's personal and it's professional for me. It's really hard to, it's almost really hard to say where one started and the other ends. I mean, they're, it's so, so deeply intertwined for me. I um, began working at the OCD Center of Los Angeles uh, a couple years after I graduated. And um, while I was there, I just completely resonated with the population that I was working with. I, it was amazing. I mean, I sort of saw myself in every client in many different ways. And, um, and that was actually when I took my own steps to get my own treatment, um, the exact treatment that I was actually doing, I was also getting. So it was a very fascinating time for me of discovery and, and got my own OCD diagnosis, um, which was, was really containing for me. It really helped explain a lot of what I was feeling. That's amazing. It's, it's, did you have any suspicions before you got into your grad program or? I had always been, you know, anxious and kind of an overthinker where a lot of people kind of identify, you know, I'm stuck in my head quite a bit and um, definitely had had some uh, experiences in college years where looking back now, it's sort of clear cut that it was, um, you know, I had some experiences with sort of hypochondriasis and had some uh, sexual orientation obsessions at the time. Um, but just, you know, at that time, especially, there was so much misinformation, lack of information that um, I really couldn't couldn't pin pin down a correct diagnosis. And neither could my very excellent talk therapist at the time. So even professionals around me weren't quite seeing it. Totally. No. And uh, I actually think that there's still that problem with ROCD, which is why you know, having like a, a book like this to discuss is so helpful. But um, what, when you make the uh, distinction, talk therapists, does that outline a certain uh, form of therapy? Yeah, the distinction is a bit, it's a bit um, colloquial. So that's not sort of like a formal distinction. But we think about the work of an OCD specialist maybe as uh, we're doing more behavioral work and sort of working people through exposures and um, there's homework assignments and it's a little bit more directive in nature versus some of the more uh, maybe depth therapy approaches that kind of look more like your classic therapy, you know, tell me how your day went today and really following where the client is going. So when we say talk therapy, we're thinking, uh, I, my conceptualization of that, kind of the way I use that is just a little bit more of what you'd think of therapy is, whereas sometimes OCD therapy is um, a little bit more, you know, you and your therapist are out there like, you know, on a, on a hunt to find the dirtiest, I don't know, toilet or something, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. One is like a, yeah, it, it's definitely an important distinction and one that I think a lot of people don't realize. And I, you know, I, I think there's lots of different opinions out, out there about whether or not talk therapy is even effective, but 
I don't know if we'll have time exactly to get to that because you are a specialist in ROCD. And while your opinions on talk therapy are probably very interesting and useful, I really want to get your take on this. You got it. You got it. Maybe another time. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So relationship OCD is a subtype of obsessive compulsive disorder characterized by anxiety around uh, relationships, choices in relationships. Um, Can you give a, you know, a 10,000 foot view of what it is? Sure, sure. So the most accurate way to describe it, just to be picky about the wording, is that it's a theme of obsessive compulsive disorder, um, even rather than a subtype, because that can imply that there's actually a clinical diagnosis for it, which there isn't. So thinking about ROCD as similar to something like obsessions about harm, obsessions about hurting someone you love, obsessions about contamination, all of these are their themes of obsessive compulsive disorder. And relationship uh, anxiety is one theme that the brain, especially the um, obsessive compulsive brain, can get stuck on. And so really what it is, is it is a preoccupation with the rightness of your relationship, having the right feelings, being in the right relationship. Are we compatible enough? Am I attracted enough? Do they love me enough? And something that really distinguishes relationship anxiety and relationship OCD um, from sort of like your regular relationship woes is that it does sort of, um, the anxiety is not what we say proportional to the actual threat of the relationship. So you guys, you know, for example, somebody with ROCD might be feeling like a nine out of 10 anxious over the fact that they don't like their partner's hairstyle that day or worried that they might not be still um, in love with that person in three years. Uh, But the anxiety is quite high uh, vis-a-vis the actual threat. Totally. Totally. That makes sense. And it's, I think it's a good distinction. Um, you know, as someone with an anxiety disorder, I don't even know what it means to have a proportionate response. <laughs> like, what does life look like where you're just like reacting to things normally outside of the tigers and bears you might come totally, across? Totally. So, Me yeah. too, Josh. I don't know either. I just <laughs> kind of manufacture it. Right, right. People claim to have that kind of relationship to their minds. Um, Maybe in another life, it'd be, it'd be amazing to see what that's like. <laughs> okay, so there's an amazing acronym that, um, you know, is in the book. And like ROCD, which is an acronym, this one is brilliant. And I really like it. And it's, uh, I don't know if you pronounce the whole word MOTO or myth mm-hmm. of the one, but mm-hmm. tell me about myth of the one. Sure. So the myth of the one is this very impactful component to relationship anxiety. It's a huge contributor to relationship anxiety and OCD, and it's a massive part of treatment. It's a massive part of success and recovery. And I do think this is what makes treating, one of the things that makes treating this particular theme um, somewhat unique. You don't see moto in everything. Now, you see the effects of society in lots of different, um, I mean, just, you know, we're humans. It's impossible that we're not affected by the world around us. But the myth of the one is describing sort of this cultural um, fascination, obsession, fetishization of uh, romantic love and a very particular brand of romantic love. So this is the one, right? This person is going to save me. They're going to make me whole. If I meet them, everything will be easy. Sex will be effortless. I will have no questions and no doubts. So the myth of the one is that a person out there exists or a relationship out there exists that will take away all of our pain. And I'll pause there because, you know, I could probably go on and on about how detrimental that is to the quality of our relationships and how much that fuels our anxiety um, and our ROCD. Totally, totally. And it's, um, 
it's unfortunate that society has gotten around the idea of supporting this thing that that makes um you know relationship choice so hard for people with anxiety but it seems like it's been but buttressed by like the media and and tv shows and movies and and probably also people who don't have rocd also subscribe to this idea they maybe just don't get obsessed with it is that fair to say yeah, absolutely. And you'll, so you're hearing me kind of toggling between using the phrase relationship anxiety and relationship OCD, because I think it's really um, quite on a spectrum um, that people experience a lot of relationship anxiety because of the myth of the one, um, which is maybe not diagnosable as OCD. And then many people will cross over into qualifying for an OCD diagnosis as well. Um, but it is totally fair to say that I think the myth of the one is really aspirational and some people, um, you know, achieve some version of this, but it is really not uh, what we should be expecting out of our relationships. And oftentimes it leads to um, a lot of disappointment. Right, right. And I, I guess the opposite of the one is this idea of settling, which has a negative connotation in our culture, I think. Um, is that the kind of the opposite of that idea? Yeah. And I actually, I really, I don't mind the word settling at all. Um, I know that it has been very stigmatized to think about, oh, well, the last thing you'd want to do is settle. Right. Um, but I think we have to be really, you know, it's interesting, even the word settled, right? Like take that out of the context of a relationship or a job or something. And it, it just means content, doesn't it? Mm. But we've sort of taken it to mean in a relationship sense that, you know, you could have done better and you didn't. Um, you didn't get what you wanted. You don't have as much passion. And I actually think that the idea of finding someone to settle with is sort of beautiful and actually something that we can reclaim. Mm, take it back. Absolutely. Cool. I'll start making the T-shirts. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> um, awesome. So, so what are some of the kinds of things that people... Um, well, okay, so I, I, I'll just go on the record here and confess that ROCD has definitely been a, if not a subtype, a theme of my uh, relationship with OCD, at least for the last few years. And uh, it pops up in my life, you know, around relationships, mostly romantic relationships, I would say. Mm -hmm. And so my question to you was going to be like, what are some of the kinds of things that people with ROCD get stuck on in their relationships? Yeah, no, I appreciate the disclosure. And, um, you know, I say it as well in the book, but likewise, and uh, something that's, again, professional and personal to me, but um, very common ones are uh, attraction is a super common one. Compatibility, are we compatible enough? Do I find them intelligent enough? Um, do I find them funny enough? It can also be a sort of almost almost like a, a partner focused BDD body dysmorphic disorder where there's this sense that you know the nose is so big the hairline is so impossibly I don't know bald or something like um, you know her hands are just too big or too manly so there can be a focus on physical features as well and then it can also just come down to the feeling. Do I have enough of the feeling, right? And what's the feeling? The feeling is highly influenced by um, the myth of the one. Media tells us we should be feeling, you know, books, movies, everything, songs. Um, so it can be a lot of different arenas in which we're analyzing and comparing our relationship to this sort of perceived perfect. Mm -hmm. It can really be any arena, to be honest, Josh, anything. Totally. Yeah, it goes after the things that somehow we've been conditioned to really care about. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. Told are important or conditioned to care about or or even things that we find slightly less ideal about our partners. 
I mean, the reality is, is we're not going to find every quality perfect, but the sort of anxiety element of that is that again, then it seems like a nine out of 10 important that we solve it or, you know, well, my partner's nose isn't exactly as whatever as I'd like it to be. Um, but is this going to mean that I'm never going to want to have a romantic relationship with them in the future or something like that? So uh, taking, okay, so if you have a client who's got ROCD and they're in a relationship and they're having these themes present themselves in these, you know, highly sort of disruptive ways, like lots of eight, nine, 10 anxiety levels through a course of treatment of, you know, CBT and uh, maybe exposure and, and also like some mindfulness around that is, is the idea that in the long term the, the anxiety will abate or, or will it always be there? Yeah. So a couple of different goals we have with the treatment of ROCD. I mean, I like to think about it kind of bigger picture as um, tolerating vulnerability and connection. Because a lot of times what happens with ROCD is there can be this pattern of like, we're sort of in one day and then we're out the other, one foot in, one foot out. Um, Difficulty committing and taking these sort of like valued steps forward. So part of the big picture lens lens would be to help a client settle in, again, settle into that connection and tolerate that connection. Although that connection will be frightening, the fear of the unknown, will I love this person in five years? Um, can I tolerate the slightly undesirable nose, you know, or is this feeling enough that I'm feeling for them? You know, those things have to be tolerated. And so what ERP and CBT and uh, acceptance and commitment therapies do, like mindfulness therapies, as you said, is they really help a person get a bit more realistic about certainly their expectations about partnership, but then also to tolerate the desire to want to escape that connection and thus to feel, you know, maybe temporarily okay, but in the long term, they would they would ultimately end up damaging their relationship or maybe end up alone. So it really is about sort of it sounds odd to say this, but almost holding a person in connection and helping them tolerate the vulnerability of that uh, experience. Mm. And, and the discomfort and pain uh, along with their anxiety levels. Absolutely. Because there's discomfort and pain in, in any relationship. And then there's just going to be that heightened experience of it. If you're, if you're um, suffering with an anxiety disorder um, or if you even come from sort of a, a background uh, in which there's been an attachment injury. So something I talk about in the book as well is you know, having grown up with um, maybe an inconsistent parent, caregiver, maybe having witnessed, um, you know, a relationship between your parents that was volatile. I mean, these kinds of things can also increase anxiety quite a bit. And um, the studies show that, that they actually contribute to uh, relationship anxiety and ROCD. Mm-hmm. I don't know if, it, I guess, so how long, it, there's just so much wisdom in the book. I wonder, is this is this from a textbook that you learned all these things or is this hard-won knowledge from working with their, with, with clients? Gosh, I, I mean, I have to say like all of the, you know, all of the above. I mean, I, I certainly have done um, a lot of a lot of reading and research because it's an area that was so, you know, kind of personally torturous for me. Um, so it's, it's definitely the wisdom of others. It is certainly my own pain. Um, and then I think it's also experience. Yeah, just working with, you know, hundreds of clients who have gone through this. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so there's a nugget that I really found, um, you know, worth remarking on. It's on page eight. It says, after all, ROCD doesn't just show up in just any relationship. It shows up in good ones, ones with lasting power, ones that might actually be worth doing the work for. You know, I I never thought about this, but um, the ROCD themes I've experienced have almost always come up in, in a relationship to people who are sort of like 
my equal, you know, socially or intellectually. Whereas, you know, if someone you just like maybe meet at a party or in some sort of casual kind of way, it never seems to spike. So I, I thought that was like a really insightful uh, bit there. Thank you. Um, yeah, a lot of people ask why now, why this relationship and not the, you know, the guy I dated for a year or the woman who I had a fling with or whatever it may be. And um, a lot of people ask that and they wonder if that's an indicator that this is the wrong relationship that, well, I didn't have this feeling in every relationship. So maybe that means that I just don't like this person. I'm just not into it. Right. Even though they're great on paper or whatever it may be. Um, but the reality is, you know, we don't oftentimes think of it, but from an emotional standpoint, lower stakes relationships are actually quite safe. Um, and so what I mean by that is, you know, if you're um, sort of having a, like a fling or, you know, again, it's, it's sort of a bit more, you know, that, you know, the person's not available. They, they are not interested in you or they're less interested in you or they're, um, again, emotionally unavailable, or physically unavailable in some way that almost offers psychological safety. You don't actually have to be vulnerable with that person. Um, and so what it then frees up is a lot of room to have sort of like the big feelings, right? You, then you're going to maybe feel your attraction more deeply and you're going to feel your excitement more profoundly. And and then uh, unfortunately, sometimes people then say, well, that's evidence that I should be pursuing those relationships. Um, but many, many, many people will notice those are not actually fundamentally you know, I don't want to say good, but I suppose that's what I'll say. Sort of like fundamentally the right relationships for them or good relationships or healthy relationships for them. And it's the individuals who are available for love that will trigger the most anxiety. Yeah, it's incredible. I mean, it makes perfect sense. It's just, uh, uh, I don't know. It's not, it's not wisdom. I think you just come across accidentally. So I appreciate you having that insight. Glad it resonated. Yeah. So you mentioned that, you know, you've worked with hundreds of people. So how common would you say this, this ROCD thing is? Hmm. You know, I, I know it's tough to give an exact statistic on it per se. Um, we know OCD is, you know, sort of anywhere between one to 3% of the population, but I want to say with ROCD in particular, Josh, it's just, I want to say more and more, more and more common. So again, whether we're going to actually diagnose it as obsessive compulsive disorder, which is a specific criteria, um, or if we, we see people coming in where maybe they don't quite qualify for OCD, but they are exhibiting obsessions and compulsions related to their relationship and the rightness of their relationship, both of those are going to be treated identically. Um, and I'm seeing quite a lot of that, quite an increase in that. So I wish I could give you some hard numbers, but I think the more we demand um, that our relationships save us, the more we are disappointed by them and the more anxiety we feel. And so, you know, relationships have really become, uh, it's, it's like the road to salvation. I mean, they, they, are, they are very, very, again, I use the word sort of like fetishized romantic relationships as being the answer. So I think the more that happens, um, the more we see of this. Totally. I remember, I can't exactly remember where it was in the book, but there's a quote that's something like, you know, the, the needs that a romantic relationship now is, is being insisting on, we're insisting on it meeting used to be met by like so many different people, like, you know, someone who, um, you know, like a wise person or someone who's a friend or someone who's like an athletic partner or someone who's a lover. Like it used to be more than just one person, but somehow the myth of the one propagates this idea that our partners should be like, satisfying every which need, every sort of 
uh, way imaginable. Exactly, exactly. Can and should, right? Like our partners are are able to and and also should be doing this. And if they're not, then there's something wrong. Um, and Esther Perel is sort of the author that talks so profoundly about like this big shift from this kind of village mindset where, yeah, you'd have your partner and they really fulfilled you in many ways, but we were much more diversified. It's, you know, it's not this idea where you'd, you'd get married and then you shut down and now your partner has to be everything to you. Emotional, physical, spiritual, best friend. I mean, it's a lot to put on one person. And sometimes I almost play this game with clients where I ask, you know, take your your group of friends, um, your closest friends, maybe there's three or four of them or something. And think about if I told you, you know, now you have to pick just one of them forever. And that's the only friend you're ever going to have, you know, and then suddenly their flaws, well, they're much more significant because it's sort of like you're asking this one person to be everything to you. Mm. Yeah, that is a good. Is that in the book too? Where is that? What page is that? <laughs> I'm not sure actually. I'm not sure if that one is specifically in the book. Okay, well, you'll have to put an addendum, you know, for the Absolutely. next version. Um, so here's a question. It seems like a lot of times in the book we're talking about someone who's in a relationship. I don't know how long they've been in it, but they're they've had, they, the word love is used, and so this is the person they've chose. Maybe they've been dating for three months or six months or two years or something like that. Is, the, is ROCD, and I know this is not a good question, but is ROCD supposed to show up like sort of mid-relationship or can it also show up in the very beginning? Like, Yeah, yeah. It's a great question. It's a great question because I think that people can experience a lot of shame around maybe their ROCD showing up right off the bat, which it certainly can. Um, and it's really different for, for everybody. So some people do experience a bit more of like a honeymoon phase, sort of their traditional honeymoon phase moment, and then the ROCD kicks in later um, for whatever reason. Maybe the relationship becomes more serious. They move in together. That's just when they're triggered. I mean, there's a lot of reasons why that could happen. Um, and then plenty of people actually do not have that honeymoon phase, and they experience it right off the bat. So there is no, uh, yeah, there is no normal when it comes to this. Um, it's really, we see it across the board in really every, I've people who have been married for five years who then have sort of their first episode with it. Mm. Um, usually it is, you know, if we see it later on, something is, you know, there's some stressor in the person's life that's maybe triggering their anxiety to that level. Um, but I have plenty of people who within the first few weeks, months are experiencing um, these symptoms, even maybe without love being there yet, but certainly it shows up when there's the possibility of that, right? So those available relationships. Mm -hmm. Totally. So I'm a little bit curious about the treatment of ROCD. Is it is it something that any old sort of OCD therapist do you think it would be qualified to treat, or do you think you need some special training or experience in order to be an effective uh, ROCD therapist? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think a good OCD therapist uh, who is a, who's again utilizing cognitive behavioral therapy and exposure with response prevention and, and perhaps a bit of ACT, uh, although the CBT and the ERP are probably the most important components, that individual will certainly be a capable clinician for this. So, you know, part of the question even in writing the book was, am I justified in writing a book about a sub-theme, right, about a type? Um, and there's plenty of people who you know, actually, I think very rightfully so too, encourage us to look at, at these themes lightly, right? Like, 
today it can be our OCD and next month it can be social, um, can be social anxiety or it can be sexual orientation OCD. You might've felt some of that yourself too, Josh, but the sort of like the anxiety bounces a bit. And so for that reason, I had to ask myself that question too, but um, the reason why the book felt important to me and why sort of write, you know, writing it and specializing sort of sub sub specializing in it felt so important to me is I think that if we do not take the myth of the one, the, the sort of social fascination with romantic love and the power of it and how, how, what's the word I'm looking for? how normalized it is to sort of obsess about our relationships. If we don't take that into account, we're missing a massive component of healing. And the other bit that makes it somewhat unique is that, you know, in many OCD treatment approaches, um, you would never look at attachment styles, uh, whereas now studies are being done on on other forms, uh, other uh, themes. But with ROCD, attachment oftentimes plays a really big role. So not only are you helping the person work through um, managing, you know, cutting compulsions and maybe accepting the presence of thoughts and that kind of thing, but you also want to talk about the question of vulnerability, safety, um, connection, again, what good love means. And I think that sometimes these types of conversations are not had in your traditional um, OCD therapy. So Mm. I think the answer is both. Um, But I would never want somebody to think, oh, I have to find somebody who only specializes in ROCD. That's going to hugely limit their access. So for anybody who's listening, I mean, you will absolutely find excellent care with a qualified OCD specialist. Totally. Totally. Yeah, it's interesting. It's an interesting question. I didn't think to ask you, like, why write the book? Um, but yeah, it's interesting how there's there's like a bit of a social critique here and also that added conversation that needs to be had about attachment. And like uh, compared to other sort of themes, like for contamination OCD, there's no like myth of the cleanest hands that's being like supported by Hollywood that we need to like take down a notch, right? But in this case, there, there is like a sickness in the society almost. Totally. I think there is a huge, um, gosh, it's very, you know, we use the word like it's very egocentric in a way to worry about our relationships. It's very validated mm-hmm. to worry about our relationships. We talk about them socially. So normal for a group of friends to sit down and go, well, how's it going? Well, well, how's this? How's that? You know, and, and that's totally fine, but we have to, understand how much that complicates, how much that makes us grippier, right? It, it makes us grip to the idea of, of the one when we expect to have it. Um, and also the profound grief that we might experience at recognizing that that is not the way um, that the cookie crumbles actually, and that relationships are hugely profound and wonderful and, and transformative, but like not in the way they told us they would be, right? Totally. And, and also I think like for like the normies out there, you know, they're not really, you know, typing on into their Facebook posts about the doubts they're having in their relationship. So I, I think maybe for a lot of people, they don't know that other people have problems. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, it is it is completely normal to have uh, relationship doubts and anxieties. And but again, I mean, I think even myth of the one culture has somewhat made that like pretty unacceptable to to voice. Uh, And gosh, I mean, social media makes it so glossed over. And I guess that's kind of to the point we're talking about. There's just so many ways in which obsessing about and finding perfection in our relationships is supported by our culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's why the book felt important to write. Although um, in a big picture sense, content, it doesn't actually matter. 
the content of your what your compulsions or your ruminations or something exactly your ruminations your obsessions i mean again you you would you would be treating our, our ocd mostly um, identical to the way that you would be treating sexual orientation ocd harm ocd you know postpartum ocd the strategy is fundamentally the same there's these few differences though that i i highlight in the book yeah yeah i hear you and i've heard that before the the content doesn't matter and it is it is true in a sense but um yeah I don't know, maybe ROCD is a little bit of a special case in some ways. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I totally think the, con- the con- I, I agree with both. I think the content does not matter. And I think when you have a client in the room or you're working with a patient, understanding their individual you know, concerns and motivations um, can really help with their motivation and buy into treatment. So you sitting in front of someone and saying, wow, I really understand the way, you know, what a big loss to recognize you're not going to get the, the knight in shining armor and that your relationship is not supposed to save you. And it's actually going to be pretty hard. Um, it's going to be very rewarding, but it's sort of like climbing a steep mountain. You know, the views get, they, they get better as you go, but um, it's also, it gets harder as you, as you go up. So to sort of come to that realization I think it matters therapeutically, although fundamentally I do agree that um, OCD is OCD is OCD. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. Sure, sure. So something I liked in the book uh, that I've been practicing a little bit myself while I've been reading it is is that it's kind of like this, I guess it's a psychological component. So like you have the ERP, which I don't know if we'll have time to get into and exactly what an exposure looks like for someone with relationship OCD. I, I would be curious actually to talk about that. But you have first maybe this cognitive component where you you keep like a thought journal and then, you know, the scary things come up and you label them or you label one out of three of them. So mm-hmm. it doesn't become a compulsion itself. Yep. Um, and then maybe you challenge it a little bit. I think I have them printed out here. Uh, I know one is emotional reasoning where like you just feel something so much that you just conclude it has to be true. Like, oh, I'm so, I feel so much aversion to this person that I'm dating. Therefore, it must be the case that they're not right for me. Exactly. Um, exactly. And then there's, you know, there's a ton of others. There's black and white thinking, um, catastrophizing. Don't know where I have them written down, but I know they're in here. You got them down right. You got them. There's comparison and mind reading and, um, and uh, shouldn't must statements. Right. And that's the perfectionism one, I think, in parentheses. Mm -hmm. So what's the idea there is that um, you notice them, maybe you jot them down. And then and then there's this interesting component of like a mild challenge. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So that's a cool way to describe it as a mild challenge. Um, So this is the cognitive piece, like when we think about CBT, that's cognitive behavioral therapy. So this would be the cognitive piece that we do um, in our work with OCD. And one of the slight adjustments that I do in my work and that we um, we do at Center for Anxiety and OCD is not to actually do traditional cognitive restructuring, which might be to come in and say, oh, well, that's not true because of these things, or well, evidence doesn't support that because of these reasons. And to sort of get stuck chatting with your brain a bit much. So I really conceptualize it as if you are sort of walking through a mall and, you know, there's those kiosks in the middle of the mall and people are trying to kind of like sell you things like maybe a hairdryer, like a cell phone case or something. And they're, they always hire like really excellent salespeople for those kiosks and they sort of pull you in like, oh, you know, lady, this, this cream will change your life. And so it catches your interest and you want to go sit and kind of talk and maybe you'll buy into the, you know, supposed wonder cream or whatever it is. Um, But I sort of encourage with these mild responses 
uh, an example would be, you know, just because I'm having a thought doesn't make it true or, well, feelings aren't facts. Um, it's almost as if you are, uh, you're acknowledging the salesperson, but you are continuing to walk along your way. So it's, you know, thanks. I, uh, you know, I, I can tolerate that possibility. And then you're walking on because one of the dangers with cognitive restructuring and sort of cognitive challenging work with um, OCD and anxiety is that we'll get stuck chatting. So we can actually get stuck going, well, that's not true because of this. And then your brain will loves that and is going to start you know, arguing with you. And it can be 10, 15, 20 minutes later, and now we're in a compulsion. Um, so what's so what, what I really like to do with this work is just as you said, Josh, it's that sort of mild response, um, which is a great way to begin creating some distance between you and your thoughts and feelings. It's actually ultimately a step towards uh, maybe fully disregarding them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and I think it's, uh, you know, it speaks to, to I, the power, but also sort of like the fundamental weakness of the cognitive pro- approach. Like it's not sufficient all by itself, right? Like, cause you're, you're never going to win arguments with the mind, like full stop. Right. But it is, it is um, at least like one method of assault, you know, uh, with like sort of this rational way of couch, like, you know, giving an expert opinion or at least a more sober opinion about the kind of thoughts that you're having in your head, but then there's more. So, so can we talk about what comes after that? Like uh, what does ERP look like for ROCD? Sure. Sure. So um, a little bit of this cognitive work sort of flexifies your thinking. And again, it maybe is the first time a person has begun to even look at thoughts as just thoughts or feelings as not necessarily facts, you know, and, and then what we move into is um, a bit of then the mindfulness work and acceptance and commitment therapy work. And then to your, to your the third component would be the exposure with response prevention. And so that's really the most significant change agent Um, when treating anxiety, period, you know, that's across the board of all kinds, is this exposure to a feared scenario or thought um, or image. So I have some examples in the book, but, you know, an image of an ex that triggers you or a text that you might send to a partner that says, I love you, or, you know, I'm so happy to be with you or planning a date night or wedding ring shopping. These things that might actually trigger um, anxiety around commitment Uh, choice, and then to practice response prevention. So when we get triggered, right? So let's just use the example of the ex. You're looking at a picture of an ex that triggers you. What if I love that person more? What if I made a mistake? Was, you know, was my relationship better with that person? That's going to trigger anxiety quite a bit. And so our instinct is going to be to escape that anxiety or sort of like snuff it out. And that's the compulsion component um, and what we know from the treatment of all anxiety is the more compulsive we are, the more we train ourselves to fear uh, whatever the thought or feeling is. So we we sort of create a monster out of the idea of an X. And so when you're practicing exposure with response prevention, you would hypothetically look at the image of your X, maybe for two minutes a day, three minutes a day, every day, uh, repetition is important, but then you would cut the escape hatch. So you would actually not, for example, then check your partner later on or um, say something to yourself like, no, but they were, you know, not nice to me or, um, you know, excessively Google later on. You would cut the component that makes you feel better in the moment. And by doing so, you teach yourself, I can actually tolerate discomfort and you're sending a very important message to the brain, which is this is not something I need to fear. 
Yeah. Yeah. It's very interesting. Um, a, a couple of thoughts sort of come to mind when you say that. So, you know, if you have contamination OCD, the exposure is like, don't wash your hands for 30 seconds or a minute or 10 minutes, or, you know, as you said, go on the hunt for the dirtiest toilet. Right. I don't know, spend some time with it. Do you have to be more creative with the ROCD exposures? It seems like maybe they're not as straightforward. Yeah, I mean, I think anytime you're treating these slightly more theoretical um, themes, like anytime you're treating, you know, a fear of, of death or dying or pedophilia or harm, you know, certainly the exposure, it can't quite be, you know, I don't know, even go hold a knife to someone random, to someone's throat. Um, so in the creation of exposures for these more pure obsessional themes, what they're called, um, yes, I mean, I think there is a bit more creativity or rather, it's just a little bit more, you have to play around with the theoretical a bit. Um, but to be honest, Josh, there's so many things that we do in ROCD that are very identical to avoiding the dirty, contaminated thing, right? Like, we don't want our thoughts to be contaminated about our partners. So we're like cleaning up our thoughts, right? Mm. So it's it's theoretically the exact same thing, Um Sure. I think some clinicians, certainly, especially in the beginning of their of their work with ERP, might see it as slightly less straightforward. Um, but it is it is actually, in a big picture sense, identical. Um, we we want to feel clean, right? We want to feel pure. We want to feel good. We want to feel like we checked the box. Um, and so, regardless of whether that's a dirty table, toilet, um, you know, hand, or it's your relationship that feels quote unquote dirty, right? Or your feelings towards your partner that feel dirty all we're trying to do is clean it up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely, uh, it definitely, that definitely resonates with me. Like, you know, you might take the example of someone who has some sort of uh, OCD about like entering a store in the correct way. So they go in, they come out they go in, they come out um, with like ROCD or other sort of like pure themes that you're discussing. At least for me, I know that I'll volley the thought or the choice from one side of my brain to the next, just on loop ad infinitum, just, you know, volleying it and then seeing how it feels and then moving it back and then seeing how it feels. Sure, so sure. It's pretty analogous. Sure. I totally agree. Totally agree. And I think, again, that's where um, it's it's nice to have the ability to toggle between how is your anxiety unique and also how is it totally not unique? How is it completely like all other, you know, anxiety? Mm-hmm. Totally. So um, for someone who has ROCD, what do you, do you recommend? I mean, this, so this book will be out, I think, February, is that correct? January. January, okay. Yeah. I believe January 2nd. January 2nd. Okay, well, right after the uh, New Year, that's a great yeah. time to pick it up. Um, how, how would you recommend someone approaching this problem? Is it through reading a book? Is it through finding a therapist? Or what would you say is the best way to tackle the issue? Sure. Um, absolutely all of that and sort of, you know, whatever a person might have access to. And I think, of course, what can be difficult is, you know, um, access to uh, an, an OCD specialist is so important, you know, and it's also quite expensive typically. So I think one of the most important things to say is, you know, please make sure like to your listeners, it's just make sure that the person that you're working with, um, really is an OCD specialist. I think that's sort of the, uh, that's the, I don't even want to say mistake. It happens. I mean, it's so difficult to know as a consumer, but really try and make sure the person you're working with, um, if you do choose the therapy route, practices CBT and ERP um, and not something else uh, because those really are not supported by evidence to be helpful for OCD um, and ROCD and, and you might waste your time and money. So 
should someone be able to um, access therapy? They have the, the funds for it. Uh, certainly, I think that that is the most ideal way to get help. Um, because one of the things is, is, you know, the treatment of anxiety in theory is actually quite straightforward. You know, it's like, stop feeding it, right? Like, stop doing the thing that's feeding it. Um, but as you know, Josh, too, I mean, and I know, I'm st- I still fall into compulsions um, sometimes. You know, I, I'm certainly much, much, much better than I was a decade ago and continue to kind of improve. But it's hard to be completely objective about ourselves. So um, my hope with the book is that it is going to serve a few functions for people. You know, it's certainly there for somebody who might not be able to go to treatment, might not have access. Maybe they're in an area that they can't have access. I'm hoping that it will also help clinicians to better understand when they're treating uh, ROCD, sort of what the nuances are. Um, and I think that good treatment can sort of be all of that, um, a bit of your own work and, and research and education. And then if you can if you can access it, um, working with a, a specialist, I do recommend. Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, one other good reason just to have a book like this out there is you know, for when people are on Yahoo Answers or Reddit wondering if their partner is the right one for them, they at least have one other link they can click on that might be a, a little bit more supportive of an opinion. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, Google can sort of be wonderful in so many ways and also just the deepest rabbit hole we could ever go down. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I really wrote the book because um, when I was working through my ROCD and my OCD, just, you know, younger, a decade ago, whatever it was, I really didn't have these, this resource. And there are many excellent sort of ancillary resources, but there is not, this book doesn't exist. And so um, it's exactly why I wanted to write it is I wish that I had had something like this um, when I was first going through relationship anxiety and my early stages of OCD. And so um, that's really just my goal for it is that it would would help, you know, that version, uh, a person who's starting out and who just sort of doesn't know. And internet is a lot more helpful than it used to be on this topic, but it is still quite misunderstood. Totally. Totally. Yeah. I'm, I'm really glad that you wrote it. So we're almost at the top of the hour. I just wanted to ask you if there's anything that we haven't covered. I'm sure there's billions of things, but anything you, you felt worth mentioning or something about how you know readers can find you or contact you, if that's a, a good idea uh, or anything else you'd like to say? Sure. Um, what do I like to say? I mean, I just think one of the main energies behind the book and really one of the main thoughts behind um, the readers that uh, the, the writers that I've aligned with and the thinkers that I've aligned with is just to really just reconceptualize what a relationship can do for us. Um, so one of the things I'd love to just share with your listeners is this idea that relationships um, can and are transformative vehicles, um, but they require a lot of our own input and a lot of our own work. And they are amazing because they force us to grow, um, not because they save us from growth. Uh, And I think that um, when we reconceptualize the goal of a relationship as sort of like um, the author David Schnarch calls them people growing machines. And when we think about our relationships as people growing machines, I think we come at them with an attitude that sets us up for much more success. Um, so that's, I think, an ethos of the book. Um, and again, an ethos that I really resonated in, uh, with in many of the, the writers and mentors that I've had on this topic. Um, 
And for anybody who's interested in uh, in working with myself or, or a member of my team, um, yeah, we are located in the Orange County area. You're always free to, to visit us. Um, we offer therapy uh, internationally as well as uh, within California, and um, that we're always available to help people direct them to resources in their area. Um, so if anybody even just wants to sort of reach out and use us as a bit of a hub, we are happy to help any way we can. Awesome. And I'll, I'll put a link to the website and um, to the book, I think it may or may not be available on, as pre-order um, also in the show notes. Yeah, currently available for pre-order uh, at this time. Cool. Well, thank you so much uh, for chatting with me this hour. I think you've provided a tremendous uh, contribution here to the community, and I really appreciate you sharing uh, this hour with us today. Oh, my pleasure, Josh. Thank you so much for uh, allowing me to come on here, and just thank you so much for the work that you're doing as well.